Welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dolwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And yeehaw! We're off to the Wild West in this episode. We're going to be looking at the Wild West in various role-playing games and how you might use it in Call of Cthulhu. That was worth it just to see Scott cringe as badly as he did. <laughs> That's just uh, just an inkling of the wide range of Wild West accents that we'll be covering in this show. <laughs> when you say we, Paul. Yes. <laughs> what do you mean, partner? I thought you were going to get in on the action too. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Before we get into all these horrendous accents, however, what is going on? Well, we're mostly finished on the writing of issue six of The Blasphemous Tome, the fanzine that we're going to send out to all our Patreon backers in December. This is a paper copy that everybody receives. And we're pleased to say that we're still looking for contributions and submissions. The closing date for those is the 18th of October. So get your pens out and your fingers on your keyboards. That'd be much appreciated. I also sense a disturbance in the force, otherwise known as Patreon. Apparently, we've reached a big milestone. We have. We're now on over 500 backers. There are over 500 of you out there now sponsoring the podcast, which is staggering. Uh, We are genuinely humbled by this. So thank you very much to each and every one of you who is backing us now or who has backed us at any point. You have really kept this podcast going. Thank you very, very much. Yeah, you. I mean, you really have. It's uh, yeah. I can only echo what Scott said. It, it truly is quite humbling that so many people are supporting us in that way. It's it's uh, it's fabulous. Yeah, yeah, I still find it scary to think people listen to us, let alone back us on Patreon. Oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as the producers of the show, it's like just uh, dumbfounding. Yeah, it's great. And Matt. I understand you have been doing more stuff with Into the Darkness as well as the ongoing Two-Headed Serpent campaign. Yeah, yeah. As I mentioned about the ongoing Two-Headed Serpent game, when the time that this episode will go out, we will have been playing that campaign for over a year now. <laughs> Sorry, I'm thinking about how long we've been doing it on how we roll. Yeah. <laughs> You've managed to get much further in a year than we have in over two. <laughs> so at the time of recording, they're coming up to the end of one of the last chapters. Not the last chapter, I think I've got about another three after the one they're on. So they've uh, yeah, they've come pretty far. And if people aren't familiar with the Into the Darkness show, Matt, do you want to just say where people can find that? There's episodes available on Podbean as well, but the main repository is on YouTube. So they're uh, video podcasts, usually about two hours, although some episodes go a bit longer, some are a bit shorter if they find a natural place to stop. But yeah, cover a whole range of Call of Cthulhu adventures, old and new. In between, yeah, the um, Toyota Serpent campaign that I've been running. We've also, in weeks where we haven't got everyone available or some players just aren't able to make it, I've run a couple of one-shots. So I've run Saturnine Chalice recently and Pulvisette Umbra Summus which is from Fierce Sharp Little Needles, Saturnine Chalice being from Deadlight and Other Dark Turns. When you watch this show, if you watch this on YouTube, you'll see Matt. And I think the viewer won't appreciate, you know, on the screen, but where Matt is, it's actually between 2 and 4 a.m. in the morning. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Matt is a hardcore gamer and a machine for running games at any hour of the day or night. Well, apart from like early in the morning. Well, when I say early in the morning, I mean at the time when most people would get up. That's a no-no. Actually, no, it's not. Even at cons, you're there at like 9am, aren't you? Yeah, and all of I try to run in virtually every slot where I can. Do you sleep? The dreamlands are alien and forever forbidden for me. So, Matt, what was your chosen Wild West setting? Well, I went for probably the archetypal one for me because it even includes the title The Weird West as a subtitle for it. This is one of my all-time favourite games, Deadlands. The original Deadlands, Deadlands The Weird West. Uh, This was originally a game published by Pinnacle Entertainment Group back in 1996. That's when the first edition came out. It was one book with a player and GM section that was hardback and softback available for it. Revised in 1999 so that it became a rather familiar format now where you've got a player book and a GM book. 
Uh, there was also some D20 stuff, but yeah, quickly skipping over that. It then evolved into Savage Worlds, which was, again, done by Pinnacle. Savage Worlds kind of evolved out of the original mechanics for the Deadlands game and changed it to be a more universal rule set that then you could bolt other settings onto it with their own additional rules. And it's subsequently also then been through a 20th anniversary edition and a new edition, which has been funded via Kickstarter back in May of this year, May 2020, with expected physical delivery in November 2020. And yes, I spent a small fortune on that. When you say a new edition, is it still the same basic Savage Worlds mechanics or have they done anything new with it? Well, because Savage Worlds has evolved in its own right, so they've now upgraded it to what they call the Savage Worlds Adventure Edition. And that's what this version of Deadlands will utilise. So they're all slightly smaller books as well. They're hardback, but they're almost like comic book format size. So they, they do stand out on the shelf mm. a bit, but they're, they're quite nice. I like them. And they're doing uh, box sets now of all the the core games. So they've done one for Lost Colony. But I'll get into some of the other games that kind of split off this a little later. So the background on Deadlands, you find at the beginning of the early edition, I'll kind of talk from the first edition perspective because the timeline advances between the different games because there is a meta plot very much like kind of World of Darkness in a way that defines the setting, which has generally been pushed forward, adding a bit more and a bit more and a bit more to the timeline with every edition. But it starts off in 1876 in first edition where you have Coot Jenkins, the prospector, who's just dug up this corpse from the ground and is having a chat with him to find out if this corpse is more human than not what's left of him in there despite him say still being dead he tells the story of raven a native american who was the last of his tribe after they were wiped out by the white man he declared himself the last son of his tribe and started gathering other last sons so that they could enact a plan of vengeance and bring about a reckoning so the white man would leave their lands. And this reckoning involved going to kill a group referred to as the Old Ones, shamans that had made an ancient pact with spirits to keep back the Manitou from the world, these evil spirits that were threatening to effectively destroy the world or turn it into something that would no longer be a place for man to live. And that Raven became an instrument of their machinations and plans that he went into what referred to as the hunting grounds, the spirit world, and slew the old ones so that the Manitou could come back. And this manifested in the world the first kind of signs of weirdness on the 3rd of July, 1863, and the final closing stages of the Battle of Gettysburg, where the dead started to rise up on the battlefield and then started to slay the living, whether it be soldiers or civilians alike. Up until this point, everything has been very much in the background. It's a kind of secret history, almost mythos-like in a way, that you've got the real truth about what's going on in the world hidden from prying eyes, but only a select few in the world know what's going on. But then 3rd of July 1863, history changes very drastically. So it's normal history up until that point, and then it goes on a wild tangent. The Civil War effectively is on a kind of hold or stalemate, almost a bit like a Cold War, with disputed territories between the North and South running along the middle of the country. Each army is gathering new technology and building its forces to resume fighting, hoping that they'll have the edge in the near future. Each group also, each side, the North and South governments, still based very much in kind of the traditional history it says about how Lincoln was president, how he got assassinated and so on. So they're echoes of real-world history that still would carry on in this alternate timeline that they used to base their own stories around. But you've got organisations, almost like investor organisations, set up. The Texas Rangers in the south and you've got the Pinkertons in the north that are going around trying to suppress the truth that things are starting to emerge from the shadows out there, monsters are real and that they do lurk under your bed and that they're trying to make fewer people find out about this stuff so that there are fewer people that's been scared because it seems the more people that are afraid of what's out there, the more stuff keeps on coming. Kind of echoes a bit of the ethos behind the esoterrorists from Pelgrim Press, admitted that um, esoterrorists came later, that they work on the basis that the more scared or the more fear that's grown in an area, the weaker the veil is to the outer dark, so that more power can be drawn through from it to create more monsters, which in turn creates greater fear, which then weakens the barrier even further, so bigger things can come through. It's not a spiral of power that gradually gets out of control. There are a few changes that have happened between 
editions, as I said, the, the timeline has been advanced. The most recent one, because they've released the PDFs of the new edition of Deadlands now, introduces something called the Morgana effect, which I think is quite a nice little, um, how shall I put it, a good way for the designers to basically go back and say, yeah, well, we did all this stuff in a previous edition, but now we're just going to change the timeline entirely. So they have <laughs> history changing because the Reckoners realised that they were losing and sent back one of their canon NPCs. Lovely fellow called Jasper Stone, the first guy who woke up on the battlefield at Gettysburg, and is basically a GM's device of saying, you've become too big a hero and too big a character, I'm going to kill you now because I'm going to send an assassin from the Reckoners directly into your game. Could be a bit of a dick move, some might say, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That he is a nasty piece of work and can easily kill parties. And he's described in the background in the new edition, basically wandering around the Wild West with a kind of a clone of himself, just going around killing every big damn hero that he can find and wiping the board clean so that the bad guys win. So basically Terminator. Very much so, yeah. There is a way of killing him, but he's essentially this almost unkillable walking corpse that goes around uh, shooting everything in his wake and you can't do nothing to stop him. Hmm. There are some big moments that hit the timeline that help to give different parts of the weird west their own feel like um, california fell into the ocean after an earthquake in 1868 creating what they call the great maze so you've got lots of canyons that are now filled with water after they flooded so that when the sea came rushing in but led to the discovery of ghost rock uh, this is a coal substitute but it burns hotter it burns faster and longer than coal Except with the little minor drawback that it kind of emits this white vapour when it burns and it screams like a banshee. That's fine, that's fine. It's not a problem. <laughs> not anything uh, weird or untoward here at all. But it sparked a technological revolution. Pretty much your mad science gone rampant in a very steampunk kind of way. So you've got these crazy scientists who are all trying to gather ghost rock to fuel their crazy inventions all across the country. You've got rail barons, which are companies that have set up railways, which are trying to build the line from east to west coast so they can command the monopoly on who gets to ship ghost rock back to the east coast to all the power-hungry techies. Are they fueling their trains with this stuff? Oh, yeah, yeah, trains fuel this stuff. So steam oh, awesome. power trains go a hell of a lot yeah. quicker. They can run longer and faster. That sounds like a Back to the Future crossover with the Doc's train. Yeah, very, very much you know, so, yeah. The wheels fold in and stuff, yeah. yeah. But it also fuels things like flying devices. So you've got proto-helicopters, gyroscopes there as well. And even all the way up to one particular campaign that they published where it can be used and weaponized and effectively turned into a nuclear bomb. <laughs> so it's uh, oh. pretty powerful stuff. It's getting really pulpy then, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Because when we talk about pulp, there's a kind of a scale from you're not quite as easily killed, you're a bit better than a normal human being, all the way up to every one of your games, Matt, um, <laughs> <laughs> where you've got death rays and flying spheres and so on. But, you know, no, there's that scale of pulp, isn't there? And that sounds like... So there's a kind of thing of the Weird West being a kind of, even back then, with the early versions of Deadlands, I suppose, being a kind of combo of like Horror West and Pulp West. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. That, that's pretty much the best way to sum it up. The character classes that you've got in the game very much reflect that. The fact you have mad scientists. Yeah. Those that are using Ghost Rock to build their own machines. One of the best in the game being the Automatons, which are created by a lovely fellow called Darius Hellstrom in the City of Gloom, otherwise known as Salt Lake City. But you've also got my favourite character class that we've discussed in a previous episode, I believe, so I won't go over too much of that. Hucksters, gamblers yeah. and others that have delved into the depths of the arcane tome called Hoyle's Book of Games and found that there are various messages left in code that allow people to cast spells and make deals with Manitous and become very, very pulpy hero or magic-like heroes. And if you want to hear more jokes about manatees and so on, then listen to an earlier episode where we chose our favourite game mechanics, I think, was the show. Mm, yeah, I think so. That's yeah, yeah. where I discuss Huxley's spells there. I've played it once or twice back in the day. I don't know, was that first edition? When the resolution mechanic was actually using poker chips and playing cards. And that just added so much to the sort of Wild West feel of, you know, being gamblers and sitting there in a saloon and you use that as a mechanic for casting spells and so on. Oh, yeah, there's, there's variations of that mechanic that go through all of the editions. In first set, it was very much the default of this is how you cast a spell. Savage Worlds made it an option when you ran out of PowerPoints. I believe it's in the new one, but I haven't got too far into reading the mechanic stuff in the PDF. I was more interested in seeing what they did with the background and the meta plot. Hmm. You've also got the blessed, which run around with the power of God, the Bible-thumping magicians in their own right. Right. You've got Arrowed, which are heroes or just 
people have come back from the dead with one of these Manitou, these evil spirits inside them. So it kind of echoes Wraith in a way, where you've got the shadow and the psyche halves of the character. Does somebody else get to play the other half? Uh, just the GM. Oh. Yeah. But there's no reason why you couldn't house rule that and have someone play the other half. No, true. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. Give them an agenda and give them a list of things that the Manitou wants to do, because they can very much be used to further the plot when the Manitou takes over. If you think of it in a very kind of traditional occultist way, where you have things like the Goetia listed in the Lesser Keir Solomon the King, it says, here's one spirit that's got legions of demons underneath it. That's very much the same kind of pattern they follow with the Reckoners, that the Reckoners are these big, bad, evil spirits in the hunting grounds that have all these Manitou working for them underneath them in a, kind of a hierarchy of hell, as mm. it were. Mm. Uh, you also got Indian shamans as a playable group, those who know the spirit ways, very much like the Raven character that I mentioned, the NPC, that he's still running around causing shit even hundreds of years after he was born. Late traditions introduce things like Chi Masters and so on, where they were got martial arts characters, but they've never particularly appealed to me. The, the core original ones are the ones where I get a lot of my fun still. I don't know. That kind of appeals to me because obviously there were a lot of Chinese workers imported into the West, well, sometimes under rather unpleasant circumstances, hmm. uh, effectively used as slave labour to build the railroads. Yeah, especially that transcontinental line that Matt was on about. With the ghost rock and everything. Oh, yes. Yeah. If it wasn't dangerous enough being made to lay dynamite, do you need a fuse? No. Here you go. Just take this and <laughs> stick it in there and put a match to it. Great. You know, now they'll be like shoveling ghost rock and stuff. Mm. But I'm reminded of the fact that Big Trouble in Little China, the classic John Carpenter film, the original script for that was actually set in the Old West. Oh, oh wow. Mm-hmm. When they revised it, it, it was turned into a then-modern-day film. But, yeah, it would have been very much more Deadlands-ish if, mm. if it, they'd gone with the mm. original script. How did they get to modern day? It wasn't easy. Well, you just wait. <laughs> <laughs> there are certain other bits of Wild West lore that it kind of pulls on to emphasise the weird. As I said, that there's these things, these uh, boogeymen in the shadows, that it has a huge beastery that it can draw down on. A few of them I mentioned, like the, the Automaton, the steampunk Terminator created by Holstrom, powered by a human brain, but he doesn't want to exactly reveal that secret to most people, so they have a self-destruct mechanism that if they're captured or wounded, they'll explode and destroy all evidence of this thing actually having a living brain in the middle of it. You've got Dust Devils, a bit like the tornado that the Tasmanian Devil kicks up, <laughs> except it's got this uh, whip-like tendril thing inside it that wraps around people when the Dust Devil goes over them. The Hanging Judges, they are the law. They'll declare that blue is illegal one day, but not tomorrow. They're kind of ghosts that go around dishing out judgment of weird laws that they impose in the territories they pass through. So basically Judge Death from the Judge Dread comics. Yeah, pretty much. They float around with two guns and they've got hoods over faces. And also when you mentioned the steampunk terminator the image that flew into my mind was that scene when they're storming that prison place in uh, the mandalorian and there's the robot oh yes that's kind of a steampunk terminator in that kind of cowboy scene yeah i will have to take a word for it as i've yet to see any of that yeah this is it could almost be a weird west show I'd say. yeah very much so yeah it's even one of the rare bits of star wars media that i actually enjoyed <laughs> It is a good one. You've got some echoes here of the creatures that very much have echoes back to the mythos. I think the biggest one is uh, what they call the rattlers, which these are sandworms <laughs> that live under the desert flats. And yeah, they're, they're just as horrible as Chthonians in, in the game. They're not quite doll level big horrible things, but they're up there. Imagine the size of the rattle. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little thing at the back. <laughs> there was a, a Weird West horror film that came out 10 or 15 years ago, directed by J.T. Petty, called The Burrowers, which was basically that. And I just wondered whether it was inspired by Deadlands or whether it was just parallel development. But yeah, it is these sort of Chthonian-like creatures in the Old West, you know, burrowing around and just snatching people below the ground and devouring them. Yeah, that's pretty much what these things do. They're not just people, though. They can devour whole ships. Because one of the things that they do outside of Salt Lake City in the setting is that they have effectively ships that they've put on wheels that then go out and go almost land whaling. They go sailing across the salt flats on these huge wheels to lure out the rattlers and then bring them in like a whale. Hmm. But yeah, there's there's been a few 
tongue-in-cheek things that Deadlands done along the years. Like they've they've done a few nods to Cthulhu, some kind of veiled, some not so veiled. Like one of their dime novels they produced, which is kind of a little story and then a scenario that you can play in the same booklet called Adios a Migo. <laughs> this is the best title ever. <laughs> I don't I don't have Deadlands, but I do have that. Nice. <laughs> Adios Amigo. Oh, that's lovely. You've also got an always Lovecraft and Stephen King head-on collision. I can't remember which book it's in, but I remember reading it and you're really laughing when I read through the description. That there is the Waitley clan that own this building up in the uh, Colorado mountains, Overlook Hotel. And very much they stay up there in this weird place. May have been built over an Indian burial ground, you never know. And they go nice and cannibalistic in their ways. And yeah, there's some sort of very tongue-in-cheek references in there. This is the only the start of a what could be a very much longer discussion because the the setting evolved into other different games in different settings. Like you've got Deadlands Noir in the 1930s, set in New Orleans, and yours truly is a an NPC in that book. After I back the Kickstarter <laughs> again by throwing a lot of money at that, so the the Max Anderson in that setting actually owns the Yellow Sign Bookstore. Of course he does. <laughs> Of course he does. That wasn't even my fault. That was John Goff. John Goff emailed me, one of the writers, to say, what kind of NPC would you like your namesake to be based around? And so I just said, well, like Call of Cthulhu, this is the kind of thing that I do. I like to play investigative characters. And I had, as I still do in my emails, a quote from The King in Yellow. So he just came back and said, right, you own the Yellow Sign bookstore. It's not actually called the Yellow Sign. It's just called Books. But it's on a yellow sign on the background. (laughs) Most people just call it the Yellow Sign bookstore. Nice. Have they used you as an illustration? Oh, yeah. Got my mug in there as well. After that, it goes on to Mad Max, kind of post-apocalyptic Deadlands, Hell on Earth, the Wasted West, through to Lost Colony, which, a bit like Noir, didn't have that many books released for it, but kind of took the setting further into outer space. And there's there's talks of a Dark Ages (laughs) setting. I'm sorry, what? The outer space one? They discover, I think, it's a portal that takes them to a far-off distant planet where there's... Again, the kind of attention of the Reckoners is, is headed out there, and it's very much, Deadlands in space! <laughs> <laughs> Did this come out in the wake of Firefly? Uh, no, this was, again, it's about the same kind of time that Hell on Earth came out. Wasn't, I think it was maybe 98, I think it came out. Okay. So it's still a good few years ago. Deadlands, to me, is very much like the Wild West period. It seems weird bolting that onto other periods, but I can kind of see how they'd extrapolate from it and use the same system and i guess like you say they're extending the same background material so it kind of makes sense to use the name deadlands even though it confuses me a bit i think it's an amazing game you've got so much that's only kind of scratching the surface of some of the deep meta plot that's in there there's a wonderful little box they've put in the new edition that basically says yeah we realize that there's such a big history you could ignore all of it if you want and just play cowboys versus zombies if you want to you don't have to get bogged <laughs> down in all the detail which i thought was a nice touch because there is yeah. so much detail out there now about the game so in that way like you said earlier it is a bit kind of like white wolf you know mm. in that approach of having a big meta plot which you can kick into touch if you you know, are so inclined. Yeah, very, very much so. Uh, it's nice to see that they've given options now where you can just step back from it and run your own thing and made it explicit in the book rather than kind of going with a line of, this is the law, this is the stuff you've got to run with. But yeah, in, yeah. in both cases, it kind of filters down that the PCs in the game have a similar kind of objective, that their job is to fight the bad things and tell the stories of their heroic actions. Because doing so helps to reduce how fearful people are and lessens the hold of the Reckoners on the land. Ah. So it is actually uh, performing a mechanical benefit of you going out there and being big damn heroes. To be fair, fighting the bad things and telling your own story is kind of pretty much the remit of pretty much every role-playing game. But mm. yeah, it's a good one. It works. Yeah. So are there any other modes of play other than that, or is that just the default? Pretty much the default. I mean, you can amp up how much horror you want by depending on what type of creatures or monsters or what kind of elements of the setting you want to play in. Like, you could play what could be almost like a kind of corporate espionage game if you wanted to do something set during the Great Rail Wars, because you've got lots of companies vying for control and vying to race forward towards Lost Angels and get their Ghost Rock supply from there. You could be one of the Texas Rangers or the Pinkertons trying to suppress stories or be one of my personal favourites of being like a reporter for the Tombstone Epitaph. I played a Deadlands LARP down in London for a good few years, which is a wonderful, wonderful game. 
And one of the things that the GM did was saying, if you can get a shot of your PC in costume, then you can get an extra Benny. Well, I went out to visit friends that lived in Arizona, so we took a drive down to Tombstone, where then unpacked my <laughs> character's costume and got a picture of me in my PC's outfit in front of the Tombstone Epitaph building uh, offices, because they're still there. <laughs> nice. Brilliant. Funnily enough, I got my Benny. <laughs> <laughs> It all depends on what part of the background, if you did want to use the metaplot, what angle you wanted to focus on will very much help to set the tone for the game. But otherwise, it can still be quite pulpy. It can be downright horrific if you go with certain bits of it, like going out into the wilds in the southwest, meeting that good old Waitley clan, as mentioned, or other such little bits and pieces that are waiting out there. You've got all-out warfare if you wanted to do kind of a very military campaign against the Mexican army. There's always a threat down in the south where Santa Ana wants his revenge on Texas and wants to go back and flatten the Alamo. There's all different bits and pieces, just whatever the GM wants to pull up and use, whether you want it to be a grander scale and encompass the whole West, or just do a local campaign. There are whole towns like Tombstone, Deadwood, all of these that could be little focus settings for their game that draw on a lot of the real-world history. Tombstone in particular, you've got the whole lead-up to the gunfight of the OK Corral is the kind of baseline setting where you've got the Earps and the Clantons that are at, um, at mm. each other's throats. So it does draw on a lot of the real-world history, but again, with this slant of weirdness of what happened in the wake of the Reckoning. And before I forget, we do want a picture of you outside Tombstone for the show notes, Matt, <laughs> if you've still got that somewhere. Uh, in your costume yeah that'd be great i do have it somewhere beyond the couple of specific lovecraftian bits that you've mentioned are there any other elements of this that you think might be inspirational to call of cthulhu keepers who are looking for weird elements that they can draw upon for their it it sounds like probably fairly pulpy down darker trails games Mm -hmm. i say definitely would be pulpy i think going into the the level of the background, because there's a whole load of deep background, so expanding the whole deal about who the old ones were, how they come to make their deal, why they were stuck in there, the whole servitors of the Reckoners that are running around in the West, that it's a way to link elements that the players might not necessarily think that are connected, but there's this huge web underneath of story that connects pretty much everything together. It's from that player's perspective that you see, here's the got a player's introduction to the game and the setting and then that later section in the rule book but here's all the stuff that actually connects everything and what it all means it's nice to have that of what the players see what the gm sees and it's yeah that world building i think you could pull a lot from this game as matt was talking it occurred to me that you know we were talking about what an old game deadlands was of course like back in the day one of the first role-playing games ever produced was boot hill mm. 1975 it was tsr's third game after D and empire of the petal throne so uh, it was like a fundamental thing was uh, the wild west yeah yeah i don't think it was the weird west necessarily no. i have played it once a long time ago but um i should have taken a look at it But what have you picked, Scott, for your Wild West game, your Weird West game? Well, the game I've picked is one that, frustratingly, I guess for our listeners, they haven't already got it, is very much out of print and will not be coming back into print. So I apologise for that in advance, but I'll talk a little bit about some mitigating factors towards the end. But it's one we've discussed in, again, our favourite game mechanics episode, which is Dogs in the Vineyard. Paul, you chose that, I think, for your favourite game mechanics episode where you were talking about the Fallout mechanics. Yeah, I think so, yeah. I think that was... uh, Yeah, I'd forgotten that. It's weird that that show actually featured two Wild West games. Now I think about it. I wonder whether Dogs in the Vineyard is a Wild West game in the way that we might think of in terms of Deadlands and Down Darker Trails. I mean, for a start, it's set ostensibly in a somewhat earlier period the classic wild west period is sort of the 1860s through to the 1890s and this is set in the 1840s sort of because it's not set in our world not even like a branch of our history as deadlands does but this is very much a fantasy game but it's a fantasy game that models itself on the experiences of the Latter-day Saints Church as they established their new their new world, the Promised Land, out in what was then Deseret and what became Utah. 
like I say, it's inspired by all that, but at the same time, it's not that. Rather than the Latter-day Saints, you have the church in it, which is called the Faith of All Things in the King of Life Reborn, which is based around the worship of the King of Life. His holy book is the Book of Life. Catchy title. Yeah. And as far as the worshippers are concerned, was <laughs> I think they're hardly unique in this, their religion is the one true one of the world. But... What is, I guess, different is, in this game, it very much is the one true religion in the world, in that it does grant the player characters certain abilities, and it is pretty much baked into the setting that other faiths are, as the the faithful see it, you know, heresies, cults, or just plain wrong. And I think it's probably worth just taking a, a slight detour here to explain something about this. I've heard people complaining, both when I've talked to them about the game and seen complaints online, that this game is some kind of recruiting tool for the Latter-day Saints or is a glorification of the Mormon Church. And it very much is not... The whole thing is written as a critique of religion and religious faith and fundamentalism. The author of it, Vincent Baker, was raised within the Latter-day Saints, and so he brings a lot of his life experiences and his the culture that he grew up in to the game. But at the same time, he's an apostate, he's an atheist, so this is not a recruiting tool, very much not. I would have thought somewhat it would have been criticised for the reverse yeah. of kind of criticising the religion and, you know, perhaps making use of it in the game or mocking it. Well, it's not mocking no. it, but, you know, people might criticise it for finding fault and consider it heretical or whatever. Mm. The thought that it would be a recruiting tool, I mean, yeah, I mean, I can guess that some people are going to think, oh, that's great, but you could say that about anything. Yeah, that seems a weird take on it to me. I, I imagine that's said by people who haven't read it or played it. Oh, absolutely. I've certainly seen people online saying they're never going to play this because they don't want to be indoctrinated by this religious game. But you get long, funky coats. It's great. <laughs> but then there are people who don't play D&D because it's going to let you summon demons. Yeah. Oh. Yes. And there are people who do play D&D because it's going to let you summon demons. You know, but... <laughs> Or cast purple curses. Anyway, moving on. You'll be getting us in trouble. <laughs> As I said, the faith in this is not Mormonism. In fact, so much so that there aren't really any concrete tenets of the faith spelt out in the book. The concept is that the details of the faith are very much developed by the gaming group as they go along. And to underscore this and to enforce it mechanically, there is this idea that Whatever scripture the players come up with and however their characters interpret it is dogmatically correct. The player characters in this are what are referred to as God's watchdogs, known as dogs for short. And they are these roving troubleshooters, I'd guess. They're sort of the the antibodies of this new community that is settling out in this promised land that move between the scattered townships, these small communities, and they do mundane things like deliver the post and just spread news between towns. But they also go out there to help. And the way they help is that if these communities are in trouble, which is usually a matter of someone having sinned and cracked the spiritual armour of the community, letting the bad things in, then they go in and root out that sin and heal the community, which very often involves just shooting someone. Usually the steward. It's his fault. Yeah. And it's worth saying also that these dogs, the player characters, this small group of like maybe four characters that go between these towns, they're teenagers for the most part. They're young people yeah. who have just kind of graduated, if you like, from the, the temple or whatever it's called. And they're kind of sent out to do this work in their communities. So they're rocking up to these communities and the town steward and there's lots of people that are, you know, they're seniors by age, but in terms of the church, they're inferiors. Yeah. 
The capital of the faith is this place called Bridal Falls City, and this is where all the dogs are trained. There is a temple there. They're raised from an early age to be these arbitrators, to be sort of the, the right hand of God. When you create your character, you go into a lot of detail about how they became a dog. This usually involves some kind of troubled background. There's something that made them stand out. This is sort of been honed and developed by the priests at the temple into them becoming, yeah, these pure instruments of God that go out into these towns and do what needs to be done. And yeah, absolutely, they do have full moral authority. They have... It's it's a, an interesting dynamic because the world this is set in, there is a secular authority as well, what is referred to as the territorial authority. So this is like the government of the people who are outside the faith and is responsible for things like taxation and some degree of law enforcement and again, delivering posts and stuff like that. The faithful don't necessarily recognise the authority, uh, the territorial authority, and there is sometimes conflict there. Mm. The control of the dogs in towns is so strong that they go along and just decide to go around executing people in the street, killing them in the street, then there is no consequence for them to do that. They do not face prosecution by the secular authorities. This is just an understanding that they are the law in a very sort of judge dread kind of way. Yeah. This creates quite an interesting dynamic. I remember talking to our good friend Malcolm Craig about this a while back because he played an extended campaign of Dogs in the Vineyard. And he likened it to the Milgram experiment in that... You start out playing perhaps these fairly idealistic teenagers who are going to go out there and save the world, or at least save souls, save people, heal communities, and try to do the right thing. And by the time you've been through several towns, you've got these scarred, grizzled veterans who have seen horrors and have developed a real shoot-first-ask-questions-later attitude. Sounds like how I start off in most games. <laughs> yeah. The faithful, these settlers, have come out from the east, very much mirroring the movement of the Mormons out from Illinois, out to settle desolate in the 1840s. And I'll talk a little bit about the historical underpinnings in a moment. But very much as is the case historically, when they got to these territories, they found that they were not exactly unoccupied. So you have these Native American analogues in this setting who are referred to as the mountain people who move around from place to place. The way it's described in the book is that they, being nomads, weren't present when the faithful came along and started establishing their communities, but then moved back. And this has brought them into conflict, potentially, with some of the settlers. And you have these sort of strange relationships in some of the towns where the official dogma is that the mountain people are actually the remains of an ancient civilization who were of the faithful, that they were like proto-Mormons, or not Mormons, but proto-worshippers of the King of Life, huh. who have somehow fallen but still had that divine spark within them. Some of the settlers in the townships see them as still holding on to this ancient religious wisdom and perhaps even knowing more about the faith than the faithful do. And others see them as as sorcerers and heretics and an existential danger to their communities. And all of this is shaped very much by what the local community's relationship with the mountain people is like. Mm. But like I said, this was based very much on the settlement of what became Utah by the Latter-day Saints in the 1840s. I was reading up a bit on this because it's obviously not covered in the book because the book isn't about this period. It's inspired by it, but it's not. But it did strike me that if you wanted to add additional layers to the game, then bringing some of that history can't hurt. I knew little bits about it, but I didn't know that much. So 
These Mormon settlers left Illinois in 1846, a couple of years after the murder of Joseph Smith. So Joseph Smith had been imprisoned in Illinois. He was the founder of the Latter-day Saints. A mob stormed the prison and basically killed him. The mob was very much against the Church of the Latter-day Saints in general, It was partly due to polygamy and partly because they saw them as being outsiders and cultish and it was just a fairly standard religious dispute in some respects. Whatever it was, the Mormons in Illinois basically decided to get the hell out of there, move west and settled in this area which they called the State of Deseret. They proposed making this into a state, but it didn't happen. But if Deseret had become a state, I didn't realise how large it was. I thought it was like a one-on-one mapping with Utah, but no, it included... All of Utah and Nevada, or what would become Utah and Nevada, as well as large portions of California, Arizona, and parts of Colorado, New Mexico, Wyoming, Idaho, and Oregon. Wow. Wow. (laughs) So, yeah, this was basically the West, or almost the West. Mm. What I also didn't realize was when they settled in that area, when they founded Salt Lake City in the Salt Lake Valley, that that was actually part of Mexico at the time. It eventually did become a state, or Utah became a state, but not until 1896. So this was a very weird time. And thinking about the Weird West approach, or at least what we might bring to games of Down Dark Trails, I must admit I haven't read Down Dark Trails, so apologies if this is already covered. But it strikes me that this earlier period, the 1840s, with Mormon settlers heading out and settling this territory and the conflicts that that led to, that must be a fairly rich time for setting games and a fairly interesting, not not just a bit of history, but a bit of culture, a bit of religion that you can draw upon. And it's not something I really think I've seen explored much in fiction. Yeah, I'm just looking at the book now, Down Dark Trails, and I'm seeing a reference to the late 1800s, which is clearly the period that I think of. Yeah. I will have to have a look before next episode and see what, if there are exact dates, what dates it kind of specifies. But I would have thought Down Dark Trails could easily be, if it doesn't already cover that period, it could easily set a game a little earlier then. I mean, I'll get on to what it covers next time. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. That sounds a a great period. It would have a very different flavour than a traditional Western as well, because they're very different people. And also it's pre the Californian gold rush as well. Which was 49. Yeah. The settlement of the area and, like I say, the the proposed state of desperate does actually correspond with that because that was proposed in 1849, so it's roughly contemporary. So I guess there must have been some aspect of that that came into the fact that the state didn't come about or, yeah, I don't know. It's it's not a bit of history I know. Hard to imagine that those two things didn't clash against each other because with the gold rush i mean that just like (laughs) totally transformed that area as i mentioned this is a, a setting where religious faith and adherence to doctrine are absolutely everything their rigorous following of the dogma and tenets of the church provide their spiritual armor as long as they do this bad things don't happen so this is Again, written into the game mechanics, something that you perhaps see in some fundamentalist religions, which is this belief that as long as you follow the rules, God will protect you, and that if bad things are happening, it is either a test of your faith or it's because someone has sinned. And in this case, it's very much the latter. God doesn't seem to test the faith of the faithful. When bad things happen, it is very much because someone has Mm. sinned. The way this is spelt out in the game, it's really nicely done. There are all sorts of bits of mechanics for the GM in how to create scenarios. Except they're not called scenarios in this. You Hmm. create towns. So the idea of a town is that it is one of these places that the dogs are going off and visiting and, and doing their rounds. But obviously, for it to be an interesting game... 
something bad is happening there. So as well as sorting out the mundane aspects of the town, like the geography and what kind of people live there and what the relationships with the, the other people who might live in the area are like, the GM also has to find some way in which the town is broken. And there is a very specific list of elements, an escalating or cascade of things going wrong. And the idea is that as you're creating the town, you can stop at any point here. You don't have to go all the way to the end. It starts off with pride. Someone has committed the sin of pride. And this is usually as a result of injustice, or what they perceive as injustice. So someone is jealous because the branch steward has married uh, the woman that they were in love with, who they thought they were betrothed to, but he's taken her as his wife. And as a result, this person feels they have been done an injustice. Obviously, the woman doesn't get a say in this, because... <laughs> it's the way the uh, Lord decided, according to the Book of Life. <laughs> I mean, if that's what the players decide, but it's not, is it? The, there is yeah. kind of equality between the male and female dogs, certainly. There is. I mean, that is a very good point, that dogs in this can be women as well as men. And there is no differentiation between male and female dogs in this. They are considered mm. to be absolutely equal. That said, the default assumption, which you can obviously challenge and change in the setting, is that it has similar mores to the Mormon culture at that time. And I think if you're not familiar with that culture, as I'm not particularly, you know, the Mormon culture of, of that period, in my mind, I just viewed it as a very conservative Christian town. And those kind of mm. mores would, would be what they adhered to, that, you know, the man was the head of the house and the woman would do the housework and the older children would help. And it was that very much kind of pioneer, kind of Christian small community. And that's something that we're all familiar with to a degree, if only from fiction. And, you know, that's that was my starting point. If you're drawing upon the LDS history of the time, then obviously a big part of why they went out to that area in the first place was because the people that they were around out east didn't tolerate their practice of polygamy. So you may hmm. want to incorporate that polygamy into the setting. And I certainly have when I've run this before, and I've used that as the basis for some of these sins before, as people have become jealous within polygamous relationships yeah. and stuff like that. So you have that pride which then leads to sin so this person does something sinful as a result of the injustice or the pride that they feel and this is where the cracks in the spiritual armor come in so this can lead to things like crop failures outbreaks of disease outlaw bands raiding the village so all these things that you might consider to be just parts of just normal life or alternatively it can lead to the direct appearance in their midst of demons or sorcerers or witches. This strikes me a lot like Supernatural going through the newspapers looking for signs of demonic activity, yeah. like crop circles or <laughs> cattle mutilations. <laughs> well, as dogs, you kind of are, aren't you? You know, all oh, our crops have failed this year. The townsfolk are saying to you as a dog, and you're like, your crops have failed. Why have your crops failed? You know something's wrong here. Exactly. Somebody's been up to something <laughs> they shouldn't. Or alternatively, you may ride into town and the first thing you see is a great horned demon there ripping people to bits in the middle of the town square. I mean, it might be, but we've never encountered that, Scott. But No, but I have read other actual play reports from people who've started off with exactly that. So, yeah, it is a sliding scale. You can play this up as much as you want, mm. the supernatural side of things, and go full out big physical demons stalking around the place doing horrible things because it seems to me like you know we've talked about how deadlands very perhaps pulpy whilst in mm. dogs in the vineyard in one way yeah it is kind of pulpy your character can do absolutely incredible things if you say they can do them as a player because you have a lot of authority over what is possible in the game and also you know if the dice are on your side you can do some incredible actions equal to any pulp game but on the other hand the feel of it to me isn't pulp it's very kind of i want to sort of say i don't know if i can communicate it but it feels very real it has to feel very real in the way that a call of cthulhu game mm -hmm. has to feel very real albeit you know that religious community but you buy mm -hmm. into that as being very kind of real as well 
And so it becomes, it's quite a serious, a very serious field to me. And certainly when you ran it for a Scott, you know, back in the day, it had a very serious feel that wasn't tongue in cheek. It wasn't a funny game and it wasn't really a high pulp game either. It was a quite a gritty, hard game about difficult decisions and moral dilemmas. Very powerful, really good game. Yeah, I think a lot of that is down to the group. Mm. So there's nothing within the game, either in the setting or the mechanics, that really enforces that tone. That is something that we settled upon as a group and something that I very much played upon. But I think with a different group, you could play it much more over the top. You could play it as a big sort of action movie thing with lots of pulpy, over-the-top action, uh, with demons running around, like I say, tearing people apart. And I've certainly read actual play reports of people doing exactly wow, that. Wow, okay. That wasn't the approach that appealed to me, so that's not how I ran it. But it's certainly there is an option. As you say, Scott, that wasn't the approach that appealed to you, and it is down to the group. But you know how sometimes you sort of decide as GM, okay, well, I want this to be a fairly serious game, but then it's really hard to keep that contained. And sometimes, you know, it just kind of goes a bit gonzo and everybody has a good time, but it wasn't what you had in mind. Whereas with Dogs in the Vineyard, somehow for us, for that group, and it was quite, it wasn't a small, what was it, about five players, four or five players? Mm. You know, all quite different tastes, I think. But we all seemed to buy into it really easily as being that tone of game which kind of, in a way, surprises me. I, I don't know that the game itself was responsible for that. I think it's to do with the setting. I think it's, I think it's to do with the setting. Mm. It lends itself to that, I think, very strongly because the themes you're dealing with are quite serious ones. If you actually play it by the book, yeah, I can see how you might play it like you've described in some of these actual plays that you've read. I mean, I guess, you know, mm. you can take any game and, and it can be played in different ways, but... It seems to lend itself very strongly to that uh, because you're dealing with a small religious community. It's their transgressions against God and you're having to make moral judgments. I think it's partly that and partly that when I presented the supernatural elements in the game, I did them generally fairly low key that there were physical manifestations of demons, yeah. but you never really saw them. When I described them, I tended to describe them as disturbances in nature, so things like dust devils building up and stuff like that. Um, yeah. Or you know, changes in lighting and stuff like that. Yeah. And we'd know what that was. Yeah, we'd, we'd know when the wind whipped up some dust in a spiral. And, you know, we'd, we, we as yeah. players, we knew what that was. But also, you know, this was a game that, all this stuff is kind of taken for granted now. Mm. This was 16 years ago. This was 2004 this came out. And this was a game that said, okay, if a couple of the players are off in a scene on their own and you're a player, you're quite welcome to yeah. chip in and, and sort of add stuff in. And that was kind of new at the time. It added a lot. I mean, it was part of the... I mean, of all the indie games, this mm. is the one at the top of the pile to me. And yeah, a lot of other indie games kind of did this stuff, but... This kind of typified it for me. And there was also a lot of stuff in there that went 180 degrees out from conventional role-playing wisdom at the time, which I think has been incorporated into RPGs since then, like using differences between player knowledge and character knowledge perhaps to create dramatic irony or perhaps just breaking the fourth wall at times. So the classic example is you're talking to the branch steward about why the crops have failed. And he says, I've been talking to all the other townsfolk and discussing their concerns and so on. And as far as I'm concerned, no one around here is, is sinning at all. And then I, as the GM, say to the players, he's lying what are you going to do about this? Mm. There's no role. There's not necessarily anything that I've done other than me as the GM telling you that he's lying. And you can decide that as a player that yeah. maybe your dog hasn't picked up on this or obviously your dog is such an acute judge of character that he has. But the important thing is that I as the GM have told you that bit of information that you as the player need to know. Yeah, and that's definitely something I've adopted in my gaming since. And, you know, occasionally, you know, you're running a con game or something and, and you'll say that and people will be like, but I wouldn't know that. And I'm like, yeah, I'm telling you he's yes. lying. 
Well, how do I know that? I'm bloody I'm telling you, he's lying, okay? Because <laughs> uh, cause they haven't encountered that approach before, and it's like, oh, they're, they're very much of the mindset that, oh, I would only know what my character knows. The dice didn't tell me. You can go further with that sometimes. I think another one that I did at some stage, which I don't know, may have been spelt out in the book or I may have picked up from a natural play report, was encountering the sorcerer who was behind everything bad that was going on in town, someone whose worship had become corrupt and they were now calling upon the power of demons to do horrible things. And you meet them and it's perhaps this nice little old lady who's sitting there pressing apples and making cider and stuff like that and you go in and talk to her and you know it's the gm say oh by the way this is the witch you're looking for Mm. she offers you a glass of cider you're going to take some and yes but she will smack you on the back of the head with that iron skillet (laughs) yes (laughs) it wouldn't be cider because they don't drink alcohol but apple juice yeah well that is cider in america it's hard cider that's the alcoholic cider that we know i believe yeah by which point i would say i'm already on my third glass (laughs) (laughs) But I would say that in a lot of ways, Dogs in the Vineyard is sort of the anti-Call of Cthulhu in the way that it it approaches the weird elements, in that it is all about religious faith. It's all about the power of the player characters and the way that their faith shapes reality. It is a very anthropocentric setting. The most important thing in it is, is humanity and their relationship with God. It is a setting in which religious faith is a real tangible thing. That's, that, that is, I'd say, the antithesis of the way that the weird works in Call of Cthulhu. I still think you can pull a fair amount out of the game, though, for use in Cthulhu, even though there's a lot of, a lot oh, of yeah. it is very much the antithesis of that. Going to that world-building aspect I mentioned for Deadlands, I think this is a good or even a great tool to build a community and build a town with if you're doing a game set on that kind of level. Yeah, I agree entirely, Matt. The town-building mechanics in this are amazing. I've talked before about how Greg Stolze's scenario Jailbreak from Unknown Armies shaped a lot of how I write scenarios, but this is the other thing that completely shaped it. The town mechanics in Dogs in the Vineyard and the way the GM is told how to create environments that are rich in conflict and problems to be solved without offering any solutions. I think this is a masterclass in how to design scenarios. I have yet to see anything that does it better. But as I said, unfortunately, this is out of print because Vincent Baker decided a few years back that he didn't want to continue selling it. And I did find a post from a few years back on story games where someone asked about this. And um, Baker said, basically, Westerns can go to hell. Utah history can go to hell. And unless I extricate dogs in the vineyard, it can go to hell too. And I think, yeah, he became uncomfortable with the sort of mythologizing of the West, the horrors that have been perpetrated there, but turned into myth and sanitized and how all this played into the myths of the Mormon settlers. And yeah, I I can see how that, even if you're using a game to critique them, could be quite uncomfortable. I'm saddened that he's pulled the game out of print and I really wish it was still around, but... I guess I understand why he did it. There is, however, a game called Dogs, which has been published recently, Yeah, which I think when we discuss the mechanics I linked to from the show notes, but I'll do so again, which is a an authorised revision of Dogs in the Vineyard that just presents it as a generic system. It doesn't have the setting, it has the game mechanics, the resolution mechanics, which we talked about in that episode. And if you're interested in exploring those game mechanics, then uh, from what I understand, this game does a good job of explaining them. Okay, and next episode we'll pick up with Down Darker Trails. You're listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media presences. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store, if you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash good friends of Jackson Elias. Thank you for listening.
Once again, we have a lot of new people to thank by name. But before we do that, thank you very much to you for listening to this podcast. And thank you very much to anyone who has backed us at any stage. And one thing I will throw in at this stage as well is if you are a regular listener to the podcast and you're enjoying it, we would very much appreciate it if you told your friends about it or mentioned it on social media or forums where you think other people who like this kind of stuff congregate. Getting the word out there to new listeners would help the podcast immensely and make us very happy. Spreading the word of Elias. But as I said, we have a number of new people to thank by name. And our first thanks goes out to Noah David Sheehy. And my thanks to Jacob Airmark. Hopefully I've got the pronunciation right there. And thank you very much to Dan Mahorta. And again, I hope I'm getting the pronunciation right there. If we have screwed up any of your names here, do get in touch and we will reread them with the pronunciation that you dictate. And with that in mind, thanks also to Tony Siak. Ah, a name here that definitely we recognise and a lot of our listeners will probably recognise as well. Oh, yes. Yeah, many thanks to the one and the only Gareth Ryder Hamran. And thank you very much to Mr. Peel. And thanks to Joshua Krizik. And thanks to Patrick Garrett Pavisi. And thank you very much to the mysterious person known only as TF. And also mysteriously, thanks to F233656. Another name we recognise here from having uh, met over at Necronomicon. Thanks also to Maxwell Mulhaffer. Ah, uh-huh, yes. And thank you finally to Anders Benson. Well, and thank you to all of you for listening and uh, join us next time when we delve into Down Darker Trails, the appeal of playing in the Weird West and some good old Westerns. Until then, partners, it's a howdy doody from me. It's a fuck you and the horsey rode in on from me. That's aimed at you, not the listeners. Say saddle up and let's ride, partners, from me. BlasphemousTomes.com Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs>